We are starting a series for the fall here on prayer. Some of you, not the entire church, I didn't send it out to everyone, but I sent out a communication asking folks to respond to me with questions about prayer so I could get a barometer and a feel for where people are in terms of what's so frustrating about this to you, what has helped you with this, what do you like about this, what do you wish you knew more about this, and I've been stunned in two ways. One, the quality of the answers that I've received, and two, that I have received any answers. That in and of itself is indicative to me of a disconnect where on the one hand we know there is something really tremendous that has been held out to us as a practice and on the other hand a lot of us feel very woefully inadequate at it feel like we're mostly doing it badly and mostly not enough and so it seems good to me as we start this fall to urge us to consider this practice that we may not have thought about as much, and we will, of course, be starting our Pray For Me campaign this fall. Here's my new large print copy. My other one got stolen by someone in our house. The, the large print are better than any of the other ones, I'm just saying. But these, if your eyes are getting older and your glasses have been demolished, I would urge you to get one of these if you've been assigned a prayer partner a prayer, a student to pray for. And if you haven't yet and you wish you were, let us know in the church office and we will get you assigned. I'm excited about this. Our second year to be praying diligently. Adults for students. Three adults per student. And it's interesting, isn't it, that we've chosen to do this thing that feels so very much like almost nothing. Like how could this be a help to a student that we're going to pray for them? We all know that it's just... Mainly something that feels like talking to yourself. Couldn't actually be anything. Well, hopefully, just hopefully, we will feel ourselves enticed. We might feel a little bit of yearning, a little bit of, huh, I might give that another whirl in a different kind of way as we go through this series. At least that's what I'm hoping. And maybe if you're someone who does bother praying, You could pray that that would happen for us commonly together. I've chosen Revelation chapter 3 as our passage today, which doesn't immediately seem to suggest anything necessarily about prayer. But I've been reading and greatly touched, moved, and influenced by a book by O. Halsby. He was a Norwegian pastor. I don't feel like the, the Norwegian... Christian community gets much play or airtime in our world, and so I want to introduce him to you. And he has a book that's very sort of elegantly titled, it's called Prayer. Now this was before there was social media, before there was so much noise to compete with. So he's become sort of a modern classic, this late 1800s, early 1900s pastor and seminary professor who was detained by Nazis because of his resistance during World War II. He wrote this great book on prayer. And it's 
It's not going to have the same oomph as, you know, if you read a book on prayer by Stormy the Martian, or, I mean, O Martian, Power of a Praying Labrador, the Power of Praying Mantis, the Power of a... I'm just making sure people are trekking. There's no, there's no franchise here. I, th- I, I think those books have been very helpful, by the way. I'm just making a joke because Praying Mantis was good. It's worth it. Those Power of Praying Wife, Power of Praying Husband, Power of Praying Plumber. These books, I think, have been extraordinarily helpful to people, and I'm glad for that. Anything that helps you pray, read, and use. Of course, one learns best to pray by praying. And Mr. Halsby, Reverend Halsby, Professor Dr. Halsby, has drawn our attention to this, that Revelation chapter 3 might be just the kind of passage we would need to hear at the beginning of a talk on prayer. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, says Jesus in verse 19. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, it strikes me that this passage is a, is a greatly misunderstood one. And as we're jumping into it, I'd like to point out something to you. Jesus is speaking in a revelation. This re- revelation is, a, is, a, is an unveiling, an opening up, a showing this discovery phase of himself to John, the beloved apostle who's exiled on the island of Patmos. And he's told to write these letters to particular churches. And he says this, these are the words of the Amen, the Amen, the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. This is the way Christians talk commonly about Jesus, that he is the ruler of all things visible and invisible as well as the creator of them. We believe that he is actively ruling as the sovereign king. His administration is being set up over the whole cosmos, things you can see and not see. But it's not all apparent yet. Christians are those who have come under his sway, who say, yes, we believe that. He's actually the king and lord of all. And he knows a lot, such as to this church, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I'm going to tell you something. It's never made any sense to me. This is just an aside for free. It's never made any sense to me when people talk about this. I've never heard really good, plausible explanations. Why is Jesus actually saying it would be better if you were the kind of person who, when you saw me at Walgreens down on Broad Street, you saw me down at the other end of the aisle and, you know, getting shaving cream. And you were like, ah, it's God. And you ran down the hall and you grabbed him and gave him a hug. And you were so fired up. You were hot. You were hot with God. And you were so eager. Every time you saw him, you heard mention of, what? You talked to God? You heard something about God? Oh, my gosh. You're like a Labrador. It's like, he's got a stick. He's got a stick. He's got a stick. He's got a stick. You were ready. So God wants you to either be like that, hot, or he wants you to see him down on the corner at Walgreens, and you're like, huh, if I go down that aisle, I'm going to run into him. 
and then we're going to have to talk. I don't want to talk. I think I'm going to go down that aisle, and I'm just going to pretend to look at this stuff for a minute while they pass, and hopefully God and I won't ever have to actually talk about anything or interact or see each other or have to think about each other. Cold. Is God saying, it'd be way better if you were cold like that and you didn't want anything to do with me than if you were hot. You know, or hot. Either one of those would be great. Just don't be lukewarm. Well, I just don't think that's what he's saying. But it's been helpful to hear commentators who say things like this. No, it's more likely that this is the idea that what Jesus is getting after. He's not saying it would be really good for you just to be cold-hearted rather than to be lukewarm. What Jesus is saying is something that would make a lot of sense to Laodiceans because they were like people from California. They didn't have water. It was a wealthy city, financial center. They had like a medical school there. They had a good manufacturing. It was a town that was on the rise. It was a booming economic place. Things were going well for them. He says that. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need anything. But you know one thing they didn't have? Water. Like California. Wendell Berry would chastise them. You've built a community that is not sustainable. You have no water supply of your own. It's not meant that you live here. So they had this sophisticated aqueduct system where water was transported in. And there was a town nearby called Hierapolis that apparently had these hot springs. Hot water, you say, hot. See, Jesus knows about your life. Your life, by the way, happens in the places where you drive around and the places where you unlock the door and walk in and places where you sit down to watch TV and where you have board meetings. And the Laodiceans, their life was happening there in their town, their life with God. And in Hierapolis, they had this hot water, these springs. They were known to have some kind of medicinal value. And in Colossae, there was cold water, such as the sort they used to make, you know, Coors beer. And this cold water was so refreshing. And these aqueducts would carry the water to, to uh, Laodicea. So they have water supply. But by the time it got there, it was often, it was not the kind of thing that Sam Elliott would ever want to advertise, you know? It was tepid. It was warm. It was like me saying, hey, what? You just ran 12 miles? You're really thirsty? Well, come on to my car. I got a glass of milk that I've left in there today. I know it's only 95, but it's only been in there for four hours. It'll taste fantabulous. You've been running. You're famished. You'll love some really tepid, warm, uh, sitting-in-my-car milk. You, you feel something churning inside you? That's the Holy Ghost. <laughs> so you drink it, and you... <laughs> You want to spit it out. That's what Jesus is saying. There's certain kind of water you drink and spit it out because it's not, it's useless water. If a beverage is cold, drink yourself a, knocking back his high and his friends do a few cold Coca-Colas. It's useful. If you're having yourself some tea and it's hot or coffee that's hot such that they have to put a warning on there so you don't sue them when you spill it in your lap while you're driving, You've seen these warnings. It's useful. But if you become a kind of something that's just kind of meh, eh, 
You're useless. And Jesus is trying to save them from uselessness. He's trying to save them from uselessness. And it stands to reason that the one who's king of creation, who breathed everything that is into existence, would have some fairly sensible idea about what makes you most useful. He even says, I know your deeds. I see what's coming out of your life. None of me is coming out of your life. You're not living the way you're supposed to be living. You weren't living the way I meant for you to live. You aren't experiencing what I mean for you to experience. You aren't sharing what I mean for you to share. You're not, you're not being animated by my life coursing through your veins and, and filling up your lungs and populating your mind, tempering your speech the way I mean for it to. You've become useless. And so he says, because I love you, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to give you a gift and urge you to make a change. And I'm standing here knocking. And Mr. Halsby says, which I'm appreciative of, and I, I never heard anybody say this before, but then I checked with our Pope and he confirmed he, conf- he affirms that this rendition is correct. Tim Keller said that this is right. So I think I'm safe to say it to you. That Mr. Halsby believes that this knocking on the door and this opening it up isn't primarily addressed to unbelievers. He's writing a church. Now, of course, you can apply it to unbelievers. And you can apply it, hopefully, to anyone sitting here today, no matter what your state of spiritual vitality is whether you're a flunky, whether you're kind of the person that sits on the front row and is annoying to everyone, whichever place you find yourself in, Jesus is knocking at a door. And O. Halsby says prayer is opening that door and admitting him in. Admitting him into our lives. It's a very different definition than a lot of what you hear prayer defined as, but it's a good starting point for us as we think about prayer. Prayer is opening the door to a knocking Jesus who has seen through the charade of our lives, who has seen us as we really are, who has seen us prone to self-deception, who has seen us on the verge of becoming useless, and he's knocking there. I would like to come in. I would like to be admitted into your life. I would like to be admitted into your distress I would like to be admitted into your uncertainty. I would like to be admitted into the center of things where you are scared, where you're unsure, where you don't know what to do, where you're tempted to do life as if I don't exist. I would like to be admitted there. It's a very helpful thing because rather than thinking, oh, I've got to pray, I've got to pray, I've got to pray, God's going to get mad at me, to think, no, no, no. If you even have an inkling of a desire or a want to that springs up at any point that says, you know, I think I ought to pray. I think you're hearing Jesus not. See, Christians believe that spiritual activity is never initiated by us. Now, it sometimes feels like it is. 
I'm going to use a big word for you philosophy majors. Phenomenologically, it seems like it is the way it seems. It feels like we're initiating things. But what we realize, even as we sang, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him. Seeking me, it was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. C.S. Lewis said to someone seeking God, starting to find himself spiritually interested in God when formally allergic to him, or formally just giving him the cold shoulder, Lewis said, proceed in earnest. You would not be wanting him if he were not wanting you. Christians have always believed that. No man can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Now, Presbyterians err in just emphasizing that part in a way the Bible doesn't always. The Bible wants to say, here's an invitation. Will you respond? Because you know you have to respond. Now, afterwards, you'll say, I can't take credit for responding. God made me really respond. Fine. But that's not how anything works. What you've got to do is hear Jesus saying, I don't want your life to be useless. And I would really like to come in. Will you admit me into your life? Will you admit me into your coming and going, into your athletic career? Will you admit me into your leisure time, into your relationships, to your parenting? Will you admit me into the judgment you feel where you walk around saying, I'm a terrible fill-in-the-blank. I'm a terrible friend. I'm a terrible mother. I'm a terrible pastor. I'm a terrible pastor. I'm a terrible pa- What? Wait. I want you to admit me in. It's so much different than just saying, pray or God will get you. What if he's standing and asking for admittance, welcoming you in? One wise man in our congregation wrote to me, and I'm just going to steal what he said and not give him credit for it. I hope that's okay, David Hughes. I didn't even ask him if I could share this, but I think it's pretty good. He said, prayer to me is like having Winston Churchill as a father. Now, some of you, I hope everybody realizes Winston Churchill was a fascinating man. Not only because he took naps and drank voluminously, but he did a lot of really amazing things. Fascinating, fascinating man. He says, prayer to me is like having Winston Churchill as your dad. But I'm too preoccupied with sports and girls and watching TV instead of spending time with them. And I think that gets at something. That gets at this idea that maybe, just maybe, Jesus standing outside the door and knocking, he's holding out some kind of promise for me so that now if I don't pray, it's not, oh gosh, I hope I didn't pray today, so I'm probably going to fail the test. I didn't pray today, so I'm probably going to get a flat tire on the way to work. I didn't pray today, so when I'm running, I'm probably going to pull my hamstring. (sighs) Stop it. That's not how it works. God treats us better than we deserve. You might not pray today and get an A on the test. It doesn't work that way. It's not a talisman. It's not a lucky rabbit's foot. It's a person who's standing outside a door knocking. 
And if you think that person standing outside the door knocking is holding out some promise for you, then to not pray, to not admit him in, you might start wondering, huh, I wonder if I'm missing out on something. What if God himself has something for me that would make me not useless? That would help me deal with my life? That would help me make it through an ordinary Wednesday afternoon? Or an interminably long weekend? Or the grief of a loss that was so large its absence is like the sky. What if there's someone who stands and is, has already seen everything there is to know about me but will not turn their face away? What am I missing out on if I don't admit them in? Different kinds of knocks come at your door. Someone comes to your door and knocks and you've never seen them before and they're screaming hysterically at you, you probably won't open the door because they're going to freak you out. But if who's standing there is someone who has something to offer you that you need, what might you be missing out on by not giving time and attention to this prayer, this way of opening up the door of your life, opening up your insides and saying, Jesus, I need you to do something about this. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, here's something practical. If you start to believe, maybe I'm missing out on something. Because you know the Bible does make a lot of promises. Talked to our session, our deacons, about this this week. One of the most amazing things to me about the Bible is that you and I, when we're in trouble, we want the trouble to go away. When you can't pay your bills, you need money. And so when the Bible says stuff like, keep your lives free of the love of money and be content with what you have, for God has said, never will I leave you, nor will I forsake you. And you say, huh? I need money? And I want a nicer car, and it would be nice if it was a convertible, and you're telling me the only thing you're going to offer me is yourself with me? (sighs) Mom, that's terrible. But yet the Bible over and over and over again, when it wants to really assure somebody, it says, here's my best thing i got to offer. I am going to be right there with you, beside you, in you, around you, near you. That's what I got. That's what I got to offer. That's what heaven's going to be, being with God. There's something about that. Now, it may, we not, it may not have a taste for it yet. Our palate may not be developed yet. Kind of like someone who hasn't, you know, started to love Kino or quinoa. <laughs> See, I just don't have a palate for it yet, and I'm not going to try. So there. But for being with God, The promises are too rich and too big for people who are scared and know they're inadequate and they don't have enough and they have these gaping holes of yearning inside and they know they've got this guilt they've got to deal with and they think, I haven't done enough. and And God says, I'll be with you and I won't stop being with you and you can't make me stop being with you. I think there's something he's holding out to me there so I might ought to let him in. I might ought to try to spend time with this God. And then the other great thing about it is when he comes in to dine with us, what are we talking about? Well, he's just told this church, 
I see all the ways that you, that you pose to the world. I see how you've postured your life. I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need anything. So one of the things you might could say is you could just admit that stuff. Anybody in here who makes a habit out of not really praying much, what you're effectively saying, you don't, believe, you don't realize you're saying this, but it's kind of an implicit statement about your life, is I don't need God to do my work or to be a parent or to be a spouse or to be a friend or to be a soccer player. I don't need God to, to do my homework. I don't need God to do my taxes. I don't need God to drive on a trip. I just don't need God. That's what you're saying. And Jesus says, but, and let me see if I can put this sweetly, you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Wretched. I hope I haven't hurt your feeling. You're wretched. You've got macular degeneration of your spiritual eyes. You can't see nothing right. You think you're rich, but you don't have anything of value that matters for your life. You're becoming useless. You think at the end of the, your life it's going to matter how sharply you were dressed? And so he says, I'm knocking. If you think it's a bill collector, you're not going to answer. He's going to have something from you you can't give. If you think it's someone who's there who's saying, here, I counsel you to take from me the resourcefulness that you need. I want to come in and sit with you. You know what you can do? You started owning up to this stuff. Okay, God, here I am. I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm inviting you into my life, and I don't really even know what to do. This is a prayer. You've just, uh, this, you're watching a prayer right now. You don't even know what to do. I don't even know what to do. I think that it would be awesome if when I'm praying to you, I could somehow experience you or know you in some way. But then there's another part of me that kind of thinks that I'm maybe just talking in the air and I'm afraid if my wife walks downstairs and hears me do this, she's going to call uh, Valley Psychiatric Hospital. Why am I talking like this out loud to myself? She's going to think something's wrong with me. But I, um, I don't even, I'm not sure how to do this. I want a lot of stuff from you. I would like you to do something in my life, but I'm not really sure what to say. Do you ever talk to God like that? Like, not use the word beseech. God doesn't even know what beseech means. Do you understand this? And he's the, he doesn't understand what thou means anymore either. That's a joke. He probably does. But have you ever just tried talking to him? Well, imagine this. Imagine this Savior who's standing outside the door and knocking and saying, I know your proclivity to self-deception. And you think, oh, I'm not self-deceived. You think, I don't need anything. Well, you've heard me perhaps say this before. Let's just take a simple test. Will you call somebody back? Does anybody in here ever call anybody back? Why is that? You know, we've talked about this. I think the reason is because if you text, you can self-edit on the fly. You know, on a phone, you can't self-edit. Somebody might see you for the big dunce that you are. They might ask you something and you have to go, uh, uh, uh. I, I, oh, sorry. You text them back. Bad connection. We'll just have to text. And then you can seem clever, hip, Matt Jelly Quick. That dude will hurt your feelings in a text conversation. Sharp. Boom. 
We're scared to be known. And you've got more help than you've ever had to present a face that's not right. But you know the difference. You know there's a difference between your online persona and your 11 o'clock at night one. You know there's a great difference in the way you present here at church and the driving home and the way you're feeling as you go back into your dorm or back into family life. You know the dreads and the fears and the condemnations and the, do I have what it takes? I'm not sure I even really believe this stuff. I feel like I'm faking everybody out. What if you just said all that? And what if Jesus might could do something about all that? I read an article this week called Ignore Your Feelings. And some of you are like, well, I've been... Why did they write an article about that? I've been doing that for 62 years. (laughs) Written by a psychiatrist, a new book that tells you to do something with your feelings. It's a bad word and I won't repeat it. But this psychiatrist and his daughter wrote this book about mental health, emotional health. And one of the things they say, and that's why they're, they're basically idea is that there's some feelings that if you're just constantly dwelling on your inner states, you're going to be in trouble. And they use this great expression. He says, you know, a lot of people, a lot of us think that whatever we feel inside, we have to say. I mean, no millennials think that, but a lot of other people think that. That's a joke. And I I did this because I'm just thinking all of you are a certain age. But for a lot of us, you think the only thing real on the planet is what's going on inside of us. We've lost the heavens. We've lost objective reality. So the only thing real, the only thing true is what I feel in my gut, what I I feel coming to my eyes, what what troubles me at night. These are the the most stormy, real, violent, moving, actual things of my life. And they are. They're real. They're powerful. But they may not tell the whole truth. But some of us think if we feel them, we must say them. We must say them all. We must say them all a lot. And he makes this argument, this psychiatrist. He's a psychiatrist, you see. He's not a football coach writing this book. Your football coach told you this every day of your life. Ignore your feelings. I've had a lot of men tell me that. But this is a psychiatrist telling you this. He said, you know what I realize happens for a lot of people as they start to, to mine the depths of themselves is they go around expressing all their feelings and processing all their thoughts with everybody. And it's a lot like expelling gas it feels a lot better to you but it creates kind of a noxious situation for the people around you your emotional flatulence is not always welcome if you know what i mean but what about if god himself the god who tends to his sheep calls them by name He holds them close to his heart, has held them in his hand and said, you're never getting away from me. He said, if you believe in me, you'll never thirst. He says, come to me, you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. Who restores our soul, who leads us beside quiet waters. What if that knocking Savior was asking you to refrain for a minute from the emotional flatulence that you permit the world to enjoy, and said, why don't you try me for a minute? 
Why don't you try me? All the stuff that you are resentful about, scared about, unsure about, angry about, you could do like a counselor. Mad, sad, glad. Tell me those things. Empty your emotional jug to me. Tell me what you're mad about. Tell me what you're sad about. Tell me what you're glad about. Tell me where you feel insecure. Imagine I walk into your house and I say, like I've said to people, and you know Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What do you want me to do for you? I think you would pray more if you thought Jesus was asking to be admitted into every part of your life. I'm willing to hear and experience your emotional flatulence. It won't drive me away. Whoever comes to me, he says, I'll never drive away. Do you feel guilty? Do you feel ashamed of what you've done? What you've been? Do you have inner conflictedness of desires you don't want to have and you wish you had others? Well, say what you are. Don't say what you're not. Come to him and tell him everything. And then say, won't you please do something about it? Have you ever been so discouraged you couldn't stand it and said, Jesus, will you encourage me? You ever thought to do that? I hope so. Guess what? He might. You have to see. I'm having a hard time putting one foot in front of the other. Will you show me how to do that? Will you be the lifter of my head? Will you turn my light into darkness and keep my lamp burning? I'm out of fuel here. I'm so confused I can't stand it. I'm so scared I'm frozen. Will you move me forward with boldness and stout-heartedness? There's no need to self-edit with God. He's already Facebook stalked you, except he didn't see the he didn't see the cut that made the theaters. He saw the director's cut. He saw he saw all the stuff that you were thinking in your room before you posted all that stuff that you wanted to fake the world out about. And he said, "That's what I would like to be admitted into, not your fake life." I'm going to close with this because I think. I think if you realize that Jesus is summoning you like this, a sweet summons, I have something for you. What do you want me to do for you? Will you open the door for me? Prayer is a way for you to open that door. Mary Carr wrote this great poem about her first communion. Here are a couple of lines. I was hoisted, she says, envisioning her birth by the heels and swatted, fed and hauled around. Time-lapse photos show my fingers grow past crayon outlines. Some moms are going to start weeping here. My feet come to fill spike heels. Eventually, I lurched out to kiss the wrong mouths get stewed and sulk around. But Christ always stood to one side with a glass of water. And I swatted the sap away. But when my thirst got great enough to ask, a clear stream welled up inside. And some jade wave buoyed me forward. And I found myself upright In the instant with a garden inside my own ribs, a flourish.
There the arbor leafs, the vines push out plump grapes. You are loved, someone said. Take that and eat it. Your Savior knocks at the door. Whether you're seven years old or 70 or anything in between, because he wants to come in and dine with you. He says, have you been swatting me away? I'm still knocking. The glass of cold water still is ready for you. And because I love you, I might make your life such that a jade wave might buoy you forward. I might have to configure your life in such a way that there are some deprivations that make you aware of your hunger and your thirst, that make you maybe even force your hand to answer that knock. But that's because I don't want your life to be useless. That's because I want you to open the door to me. That's because I want you to let me come in and dine with you. What's the cost? What are you missing out on? By not admitting him in. By not making space to say, okay, Jesus, it freaks me out, but come on in. And here's what I'd like you to do for me. The invitation stands. The knock persists, even to this day. Will you answer, or will you swat away? Amen.